Let's look at Romans uh, 5. Actually, I want to have you turn to 2 Peter 1 um, as we make our way to um, Romans 5. 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. One of the important responsibilities of being a pastor is the task of reminding God's people of His commands and promises. And so pastoral ministry is repetitive. How do we usually respond to repetitive things? (laughs) I think of the Charlie Brown cartoons, when the teacher would talk, you know? Uh, You don't want, however, you don't want a clever pastor who's novel with ministry and the scriptures and uh, you want a man tethered to the scripture bringing before you the truth of God's word in season and out of season when it's popular and when it's not. The Apostle Peter emphasizes this in 2 Peter 1, and I wanted to bring this to your attention. Picking up at verse 12, he's just presented to his readers, verse 10, making your calling and election sure and backing up before that. We're to build on our faith. This is Christian growth. We're to build on our faith, make every opportunity, every effort, verse 5, to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And that this is part of what it means to grow as a Christian. And he goes on to say that, um, that this is part of the fruit that comes forth from a true believer. And then in verses 12 through 15, he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things. Why do we need to be reminded? Well, because we're forgetful, aren't we? But that's not all. He says in in the following verse, to stir you up by way of reminder. That reminder should stir us up. And sometimes we hear a truth that we've maybe heard messages on many times, and we see another angle of truth, uh, application that God wants to bring into our life. And then finally, he closes in verse 15, that you may be able at any time to recall these things. So he's reminded them and reminded them and pressed against their heart these truths and that they may grow. And so those who serve as pastors are not charged with inventing new material, offering cultural analysis, serving as your life coach, but reminding you of what God has said in His Word. And what makes the task of pastoral ministry, preaching in particular, a challenge is to present truth that is not new and often comes by way of a reminder. Uh, I was thinking of a missionary family that I read of years ago, and um, they had a little boy who loved to play in the backyard. And one evening, his mother called out to him, come and wash your hands, it's time for dinner. And the mom could hear the little boy grumbling under his breath, germs and Jesus, germs and Jesus, that's all I ever hear around here. And I was thinking of that little boy, perhaps uh, it might be true of you, we've been in Romans 5 for some weeks, sin and Jesus, sin and Jesus, oh, we need to hear about it. 
We, Paul repeats himself in Romans 5 in such a way that we would take in the depth and the breadth and the length and the height of God's redemption for us. I sp- <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, like the Apostle Peter, offers repetition to reinforce truths that we need pressed on our minds and in our hearts. So would you think with me at this justification by His blood? Uh, notice with me first, Paul established, he offers this repetition so that you and I would be assured in our faith. Assurance is a blessed gift to God's people. No one can impart assurance to you. These are based upon God's claims. Assurance of salvation comes from receiving and remembering. Assurance of salvation is a work of the Spirit that comes as we receive and as we remember God's saving promises in Jesus Christ. There's no substitute for that. And so throughout these first eight verses anyway, Paul offers a series of repeated truths to bring assurance to our hearts as believers in, in Jesus Christ. The first, in verse 1, God has made peace through the death of Jesus Christ. The warfare that we have known as unbelievers has been obliterated through the blood of Jesus Christ. God has made peace with us through the death of His Son, Not only that, through His saving work, we've been brought into a new relationship. We're not on the outs with God. We've been brought into the inner circle through what Jesus has accomplished for us. In that moment, we refer to often in His crucifixion, the veil in the temple was torn in two, signifying that we have access to God. And we're not only declared legally righteous before the bar of God, which is the judgment seat of God, the court of heaven, not only are we declared righteous now, but we will be declared righteous then. And as wonderful as that is to be legally cleared, the picture is even deeper as we read in the Bible that God's adopted us as children. We're sons of God So this assurance of salvation comes to us because of the sure and certain hope and this grace in which we stand. Do you have assurance of your salvation? You might be able to quote John 3.16 and refer to a time in your past where you responded positively to a gospel claim. And those can be precious memories. We should reflect on those. Remember how God has moved in our life. I'm wondering, as a professing believer, do you have true assurance in your soul that Christ is yours and and you belong to Him? Do you have that assurance that if you were to stop breathing this very morning, that you would be in His presence based upon His grace in your life. There's a blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Do you have assurance? I pray that you would find your assurance in the promises of God through His Word. And even in our sufferings in this life, Paul goes on to say that we... we we know that God has a purpose, that we can rejoice even in our sufferings knowing that one day all of that will be put aside and that Jesus was sent by God to die for us 
even though we were declared enemies. So he's repeating these themes all through Romans 5, and he provides another repetition here. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Saved from God's wrath. So I want to divide verses 9 through 11 in, in several ways. Secondly, on your outline, on your insert, God saves to the uttermost. I want you to think of the, the full span of God's redemption. He saves to the uttermost. That, mo- that means in real time we are saved when we repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament also refers that we are in the process of being saved. That's our sanctification. And one day, we will be saved when we look at the full picture and the full end of God's people in His very presence, we will be glorified. Throughout verses 9 through 10, He says much more, much more. And more than that, God saves to the uttermost. I'm reminded of Hebrews 7.25 where it says that Jesus is able. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. Save to the uttermost. What does that mean? Interesting Greek word. It means completion. It means completely, wholly, entirely, referring to time always and forever. He saves to the uttermost those who draw near to him, near to God through him. So Paul uses here in verses 9 through 11 something that I know will set your soul on fire. He uses logic. And so let's call this logic on fire as Paul uses a technique from, a, from the rabbis where he often presents truths, truths from the heavy to the light. Since the heavier, greater truths are established... Certainly the lighter, lesser truths are established. And he uses that in verse 9. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, that means his death, and all that was accomplished through his sacrificial life, death, and, and ultimately resurrection, much more shall be saved, we be saved by him from the wrath to come. And he also uses it in verse 10. While we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So these arguments are based upon things God has already done for us through the death of Jesus Christ. They're great works. We're justified on the one hand and reconciled on the other. He says in verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So if God has done such great works through His Son, Jesus Christ justifying us in Christ when we were ungodly and reconciling us to himself when we were his enemies, God will obviously continue his work in the lesser task of seeing us through every experience we know in this life. I'm amazed by that. Because the greater is true, these lesser things that we experience in this life, important as they are in God's economy of things, but pale in comparison to what He's done in Christ, God will continue His work in the lesser task of seeing us through life and through the final judgment. 
So Paul actually has a vision here of standing before God in the final judgment. And the things we know right now by faith in Jesus Christ will be true then. Innocent. Forgiven. Righteous through my Son. Welcome into the joy of my kingdom, my child. He says here, saved by him from the wrath of God. There we go again, the wrath of God. It was mentioned in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God has been revealed. Here it is again. What has Jesus saved us from? This is so important. Just reading your Bible, you come to verses like this. We are saved from the wrath of God. It says in John 3, the wrath of God abides on those who do not believe now. Doesn't look like it. They seem to be doing quite well and enjoying life on this world, in this world the way they want to. And sometimes we might be tempted to envy that. Like Asaph in Psalm 73, when he saw the wicked prospering, he began to think, you know, I've washed my hands in vain. I've lived for God in vain. Until he went into the sanctuary of God and he understood and perceived their end. And he said, what a beast I've been. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's no one on earth I desire besides you. God is the strength of my life and my joy forever. Now, he mentions save, saved here in three ways. And I've already referenced it. Um, past, present, and future. You know, are you saved? That's a good question. Saved from what? Well, save from the wrath of God, according to this text. There's a lot of ways to answer that. I don't believe in the wrath of God. Well, you may not believe in it, but Jesus said more about a hell than he did about heaven, and it's clearly taught in the Bible that we have a life to live, a death to die, and a judgment to face. Are you saved? I pray that that would be yes. I'm trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and my Savior. That's something that happens in real time. It also happens in the present. We're reminded throughout the New Testament. He says, I'm being saved. I'm being saved. We're being saved from, by the, by him from the wrath of God, which refers to our sanctification. To be a Christian means we're growing in Christ-likeness. If you heard someone say, I'm being saved, you might think, he's got a doctrinal problem. Because I was saved, you know, and you might even be able to mention a date, although that's not required for true redemption and salvation. You may remember a time when you repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that really is a mark in time where your life has taken on a new direction. But if someone said, I'm being saved, we might not understand that. But that is taught uh, in, the, in the New Testament that we're in the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That the preaching of, of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but unto us who are being saved, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, it's the power of God. Being saved. I was reminded and thinking about this. Of, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the preaching of Calvin Miller. who had quite an interesting life. 
started a church in Omaha in the mid-60s, 1966, and when he left in 1991, um, he started with 10, and the church was 2,500 when he transitioned to teach at a seminary, but I remember reading his early life. He said, by the age of 13, I'd been saved 13 or 14 times. We understand the exasperation of that, coming to terms with receiving biblical assurance. But it, it is true that every true believer is in the process of being saved in this life. And then there's a future. I will be saved I will be, in verse 10, we shall be saved by his life. So our redemption is seen in these terms that we might understand it better. So we shall be saved by his life. He is thinking of the judgment to come and is saying that because we have already been justified by God on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ, we can be certain that we will be saved from the outpouring of God's wrath on that final day. No guilt in life. No fear in death. Jesus Christ alone is our hope in it all. Hallelujah. If God has already justified us on the basis of Jesus' atoning death, if he has already pronounced his verdict, any verdict rendered at the final judgment will be only a confirming formality. So maybe you're saying, I don't like all this talk about the wrath of God. Is that even helpful? Is that even helpful to talk about the wrath of God? I think the reason the wrath of God has not been preached in the pulpits of America for several generations now is one of the reasons people yawn at the gospel. There's no repercussions. It's a take it or leave it message. There's no sense of urgency. Say from what? Well, when we think about the pictures that are given, for instance, in Revelation 20, which I think is helpful to go there from time to time, I'm going to ask you to turn Revelation 20, and we see this final judgment, this great white throne judgment at the end of time, where John says in verse 11 and following that he saw a great white throne, one of purity, one of ultimate authority, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And John saw the dead, the great and the small, from all of history in this moment. He, he saw standing before the throne. The books were open. There was accountability there. It says in verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, there's an escape hatch, isn't there? There's no escape hatch. There'll be other opportunities to respond to the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. None are offered in Scripture. So what makes the gospel the greatest news you and I can ever ingest or take in is the fact that Jesus has paid the penalty. He's our advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so the upshot 
for us this morning is expressed powerfully in verse 9. Since therefore we've been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. To be in Christ is to be secure indeed. And there will come a time when we die. I've been following Randy and Nancy Alcorn's journey. Nancy was under hospice care and maybe you you remember me referencing Randy and his work Heaven and his book Happiness and The Treasure Principle and many other resources that have been a blessing to us. Nancy went to heaven and she said in the last weeks of her life, God is in control, I'm not. God knows my future, I do not. God always has my best interest in mind, I can trust that. You can trust Him. There's no greater place to be. Notice with me next in verse 10 specifically as we, um, as we follow this, uh, this path of, um, of Paul's argument here. Uh, there's a shared hostility. There's a shared hostility. It says in verse 10 that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by His death. And that this hostility was shared, not only God toward us because of our rebellion toward Him, but also it describes our response to His his authority. Thomas Schreiner, in speaking about this enmity that exists between God and us, uh, God's enmity, His Animosity, his hatred towards sin cannot be excluded because Paul has made patently clear that, the, that human beings stand under God's wrath. But human enmity, human hostility towards God, we know what that is too. Clenched fist, grinding teeth, hating God's standards apart from the grace of God. That nothing in our flesh can please him. And so that, that's a war, friends. That's a serious war. And he mentions here, we've been reconciled to God. That's a glorious word. Reconciled means to remove the grounds of hostility and transform the relationship. Changing it from one of enmity and hostility and hatred to one of friendship and the deepest love you could ever know. Take us out of the category of enemies and bringing us into God's family as privileged sons and daughters. If God did that for, his, for us as his enemies, and by the way, he took the initiative, we didn't. <laughs> we couldn't. What could we offer him? He is certainly going to save us from the final outpouring of wrath on the day of judgment now that we are in his forever family. this, This word saved is a beautiful word. Saved. It it says in verse 10, saved by his life. Certainly he's mentioned the cross, his blood. But in verse 10, we shall be saved by his life. What is that referring to? Well, uh, scholars have debated that. And it probably refers to his resurrection and his intercessory work. I mentioned that a moment ago in Hebrews 7, 25. He saves to the uttermost. 
We have a great high priest. Christ has ascended and he's in heaven and he lives to make intercession for us. He is for us. We're saved by his life. He is a risen Savior. He is a living Savior. Saved by his life. I I also think there's a reference here to the fact that, that Jesus Christ, in both his active obedience and in his passive obedience, active obedience, he fulfilled the law of God perfectly. One of the attributes and characteristics of Jesus is that he's been tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. And then his passive obedience, he suffered on the cross, he paid for our sins. He obliterated our alienation from God. He experienced physical death and the agony of being the sin bearer. He said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that is a, I think of Martin Luther's exhausted uh, conclusion, God forsaking God, who can understand that? But It does describe that he became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He bore it all and all to him we owe. He experienced the the abandonment in time that we deserve forever. He was a propitiation for our sins, satisfying God's wrath against us. And so salvation is is boasting in God, finally. Verse 11, salvation is boasting in God. Notice uh, these three verses together again. Much more shall we be saved by him, verse 9. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life, verse 10. Verse 11, much more, or more than that, we, we also rejoice in God through, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we think about our salvation, at the heart of it is that we rejoice in what God has done. We rejoice in God himself. Salvation is declaring to this world, look what God has done through Christ. Look at what he's done in my life to be reconciled to God. Our boast is in the Lord. What do we have to offer him? Well, this text has made clear that we're weak. That we're weak. We're powerless. Verse 6, while we were still weak, frail, Christ died for us. Not only are we weak, we're ungodly in our rebellion against God. This word describes the rebellion of the human race against God. Our ways are not his ways. In the days of Noah, um, the Lord said in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I asked the youth this morning in our Connect group, we hear a lot of practical wisdom today. Some people say, just trust your heart. That's the worst advice you could give somebody. Scripture pictures us in fierce opposition to God. We're sinners. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin in Jesus, sin in Jesus, sin in Jesus, sin in Jesus. 
We've missed the mark. That's an archer's term in Romans 3.23. We miss the bullseye and we do it on purpose because we want to do it our way. We've broken God's laws. We're His enemies in a perpetual state of defiance. And so what hope can we find? Well, we have reconciliation, that's how. Through what Christ did. It means to remove the grounds of hostility and transform the relationship once and for all. That can happen for you this morning in your relationship with God as you come to God His way through Christ. We exult in God. We rejoice in God, Paul said. More than that, we also rejoice in Him. Ultimately, look at what God has done. I thought of all the lives that were changed and preserved in Scripture. I thought of Naaman the leper who wanted to come to God his way and he had leprosy and he was told by the prophet Elisha to go wash in the Jordan River and The text said that he was furious with that advice. He'd come all the way from Syria. They had wonderful rivers there, but he had leprosy. And Elisha didn't even really go out to greet him. He just said, tell him to go wash seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman had all these things in his mind. He said, as he was furious and went away saying, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of his God and I would be healed. There you go thinking again, Naaman. God hasn't called you to think. He's called you to obey. And the word of the Lord says, go to the river. And the same word that commanded Naaman to the river commands you and I this day to go to the cross, to go to Jesus Christ. And we know the wonderful outcome of Naaman's life how he went and dipped in the river and his skin was like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. It reminds me of seventh grade industrial arts where our teacher in shop said, sand that wood, boys. I want it smooth as a baby's behind. And so Naaman came out with skin like a child. Look what God has done. How about the woman at the well? You know, the woman with five husbands and the woman, uh, the man that she's living with at present when she encountered Christ at the well was not her husband. I love as Jesus reveals his Messiahship to her, we wouldn't have. We wouldn't have probably given her the time of day. But he reveals his Messiahship to her. A Samaritan woman with five X's and a live-in. And he tells her about worship. There's coming a day when God will be worshipped not on this mountain or that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. And she went back into the village. He left her jar there, which was really valuable signifying that she had left it all and was telling others about what Christ had done for her. And I loved her testimony. Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. You know what's true of her is true of you. He knows everything you've ever done. You can hide nothing from him. 
Every time we hear the gospel, it's a call to come clean and to receive what he's done through Jesus Christ. And how about the man at the pool of Bethesda? John 5, he'd been there 38 years, I believe. And he was really trapped in this tradition that an angel would come and bubble up the water and man, if you could slip in with all the other paralytics around the pool, uh, that you would be healed. Just in bondage to these superstitions. And Jesus said to him, you want to be made whole? What are you kidding? (laughs) Rise and walk. That's a great statement of Christ in the gospel, isn't it? Rise and walk. How, preacher? Come to him by faith. Turn from your sins. Acknowledge them to him. Lord, bring a new beginning into my life. I trust you as my only Savior, the only one who can reconcile me, the only one who can reverse my sentence, the only one who can be my advocate, the only one who could save me. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, had a moment where he was hunting and God was trying to get his attention in a number of different ways. And he was hunting and he had a shotgun with him and he was carrying it perpendicular and it discharged and charred the side of his face and, uh, and, and destroyed his hat. And he came to see that the experiences of life were God's way of getting his attention and teaching him to fear so that he would look for relief in the only place that he could find it, Jesus Christ. And he wrote in that great hymn, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Grace taught my heart to fear. I was um, reminded of an exchange a pastor had with a young lady who had come into his office and she was really loving her sin and loved living her life for her own. And, And she asked the pastor, is there really a hell? Is there really a wrath of God? And he shared with her in no uncertain terms, there most certainly is and you want to avoid it. And she said that she had gone to many different places asking for help with regard to guidance for her life. And she wrote him back and said, thank you for being so forthright to tell me that there is a judgment day coming and that my only hope is in Christ alone. It is amazing grace held against the dark backdrop of our failures and our sin and our need for a redeemer. If we don't understand that, we got the gospel, and it's not amazing grace. It's another thing to add to my religious life. And that's not the same thing as him being your savior and your Lord. So would you come to him? Would you receive his amazing grace? If you do know the Lord, and we preach primarily to the people of God, Would you take in this repetition of the Apostle Paul and think about the depth of what he's done to redeem you and call you to himself? No longer an enemy, a son, a daughter.
in Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer? As our praise team comes and we get ready to sing a final song, it's a time to reflect and to surrender our hearts to the Lord. When we hear the word of God, it's a call to obey him. And so as we sift through the issues of our life, whether it's a cold heart, whether it's an act of just disobedience and you're caught in things, or you're in a moment of great joy in your salvation, it's a time to acknowledge him. Lord, you are Lord of all. Father, we pray in these closing moments of this Lord's Day worship on April 10th, 2022 that you would help us to finish this time in faith and fully surrender to you in Jesus name. Amen.